CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Up until mid-February 2020, the American subculture of preppers were a bunch of paranoid idiots. (laughs) Now they're geniuses. And so that kind of vindication can also happen in financial affairs. The be your own bank subculture in crypto is a bunch of paranoid idiots for now. On today's show, we'll discuss one of the most important narratives in Bitcoin, the idea of being your own bank. And while it's a powerful idea, in practice, it's not that simple. Today's episode is sponsored by eToro.com. Let's Talk Bitcoin is owned by the host and editorially independent, but you can find new episodes every Sunday on the Coindesk Podcast Network at Coindesk.com, the LTB Network at Let's Talk Bitcoin.com, and on our privately managed show-only subscriber feed at LTBShow.com. With all of that said, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today I'm joined by the other hosts of the show, Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Step back, sir. Step step back. Six feet. Social distancing. We've been doing that for seven years before it was cool. <laughs> so to jump right into it, I realized a couple of weeks ago that I know more people today who are asking for help moving their Bitcoin to Coinbase for safekeeping than people who want help setting up a wallet to be their own bank. Most of these people have had wallets for years, sometimes many years. Many of them have experienced losses, mostly due to poor key management, but in some cases because of literal digital on-the-computer theft. There are a couple of ways that I'd like to explore this today, but just to kick things off, Jonathan, I'd like to start with you. Why should enthusiasts like us, or even just normal people, want to be their own bank? Well, there are a number of reasons, one of which is it's not your money if you don't own it. The difference between permission to access your money versus actually owning your money is quite profound. And especially in the insane times of crisis that we're in, if you think about your portfolio and how you hedge different risks, the idea that when you would need your money most is when someone could deny you access to it is something very real, even more so today. And I think that maybe not all the dollars you have in the world or all the wealth you have in the world, but a very small percentage of it at least should be something that you know you will always have access to. And Bitcoin's one of the few technologies that can do that. So in that way, anything that allows you to, quote, be your own bank, even if it's not all your money, is something that I think everyone should have access to, which is the ability to use their own money without anyone else being able to tell them no. I really like what you said about that, Jonathan, that the possibility that you could be denied access to your own money when you need it most 
is really motivating for the idea of being your own bank. But let's talk about the people who don't have another option other than to be their own bank, right? There's lots of people who just don't have access to the same financial services that we do as Americans. And so, you know, that's kind of like their best choice. So being your own bank makes a lot of sense when you literally don't have any other option, right? (laughs) When like literally there are no banks that will service you or you live in a part of the world that doesn't have access to banking systems in the same way that perhaps we have access to them in the developed world. Or the trust in banks as an institution is completely degraded where you are. Well, let's talk about that for a second, though, because I think that you could say pretty concretely that at least for many people in the developed world, the level of trust and the level of sort of appreciation that we have for the banks that we do use, like I've worked with the same couple of banks, I guess two banks, since I was like 15 years old, right? But I don't trust them. I don't like them. But I still use them because the idea that I would keep, you know, a bunch of cash at my house seems more risky. And it seems like, again, the repercussions of getting that wrong are a lot worse than if a bank gets robbed, right? If a bank gets robbed, I'm insured. I don't have to think about that. And I think that this is a thing that with Bitcoin has kind of come up increasingly is that you can be robbed in an exchange, but you can also be robbed just on your own computer by nature of the kind of physicality that Bitcoin has in the digital world. But similarly, you don't even have to be robbed to actually lose access to your money or to lose it entirely. You just have to get one thing wrong one time And that can sometimes lead to what is to a person a very catastrophic kind of situation. Yeah, and it's really hard to get insurance against that possibility too, right? Where as banks seem to have this built-in kind of insurance policy of like, oh, don't worry, you know, if something gets screwed up, you'll be protected at least a little bit. (laughs) Right. And perhaps more than a little bit. I think that this is an important thing is that when you're talking about a bank, You are trusting the bank with your money, but then to a much greater extent, you are trusting the government to come in and back up the bank should anything actually happen to it. Assuming that you're under the FDIC limits, which I think the last time I looked at were like $250,000 per account. What a convenient solution. Well, so let's talk about that. Okay. How about I start with, hey, I'm Greek. (laughs) And everything you just said doesn't apply. The idea that you've had the same two banks since you were 15 and you trust them and this magical FDIC will come to your rescue if the bank goes bad, da 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 that is very much the experience of less than 5% of the human population. Now let's look at the experience of banks in places like Greece, Cyprus, Argentina, places where the number of crises in that period of time between you were 15 and in your 40s would probably be around a dozen crises. And during those dozen crises, not only has the bank disappeared with your money, but the backstops that are very much there cease to be there overnight. So like FDIC is great as long as you don't need it. And then if you need it, and if you need it in a systemic way, it's a complete delusion. There is no way and no one who can step in to back up the deposits if a couple of the large, systemically important banks fail. There is no way. There is no one. First of all, FDIC is a private organization. It's an insurance pool by banks. And it's designed to do one thing and one thing only, and that is to protect against the occasional 
isolated failure of one or two small banks, an event that occurs several times a year and goes unnoticed. And it works well for that. It has nothing to do with systemic risk in the economy. The moment you have one or two big banks fail, like Citibank, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, FDIC simply cannot do that. And the idea that the government will come in and back you up is also the kind of privileged illusion that only exists in very few countries. Let me ask you this. Do you think Greece and Cyprus had depositor insurance when the banks went under? Of course they did. And what happened? Didn't work. (laughs) And then they didn't, right? So when they did the bail-ins in Cyprus and people took a haircut, they had depositor insurance. It didn't work. Do you think Argentinian banks have depositor insurance when they convert dollar accounts into peso accounts at the quote unquote official rate, which is several times below the market rate and basically bail in the banks, which has happened several times. Of course they do. So these are illusions. The idea is that if you have your money in the bank, no one can rob you. There's a big asterisk next to that that says, except the bank itself. The bank itself could rob you. And if you live in a country where the banks are the robbers, then that's a bit problematic. So this illusion that money in the bank is safer than money under the mattress is very much a position of privilege. And we have to recognize that. I do recognize that. And I think that there's a point that's perhaps a little bit deeper there as well, which is the difference between sort of day-to-day security and safety, or at least the appearance of that, versus the appearance and availability of that safety during times when there really is a meaningful systemic disruption. The U.S. banking system has had a couple of those, but it's managed to sort of survive through and kind of stretch that credibility, sometimes not particularly well. But there haven't actually been any bank failures that have resulted in the U.S. in customer deposit loss, in large part because of these funds. Since the 1920s. That's right, since the 1920s. I remember back during the Cypriot crisis where all of the banks were kind of frozen and they were talking about how they were going to do the haircut. And I took a look at what kind of equivalent you could see in the United States if the financial system as a whole were to go down and what the FDIC could actually do in that sort of circumstance. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was, you know, like a fraction of a percent of the money that, you know, would need to be paid back or would need to be rescued, so to speak was what the FDIC actually was holding. And even if you were to take all of the contributions that the banks would be putting into the FDIC insurance fund over the course of 10 years, you still were just at like maybe 1% of the total size of the actual problem. So that's very true. But on the flip side, for people who are in the process right now of being their own bank, you don't need to have a systemic disruption in order for you to lose everything. You just need to not have good practices Or frankly, you need to get unlucky in a couple of different ways. Well, even outside of the risk event occurring, there's also the active and ongoing passive anxiety over those instances happening. It's one thing to have a risk event occur once every three years. Even if the comparable is, this will happen once every three years rather than once every 10 years, but you'll worry about it zero except when it happens. And in the once every 10 year scenario, you'll be worrying about it constantly in the back of your head. Did I leave the oven on? And sort of the problem with key management is 
it would be wonderful if we were all leprechauns and we had access to rainbows as a way to store our wealth. But we're not all Irish and we're all not graced with the magic of the leprechaun. <laughs> hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should have Bob McElrath on to teach us, although I could be conflating my Irish with my Scottish. But, you know, fear and anxiety is a thing that people have. And it is actually with merit, because if you actually look at, I need to check the report again, but the average retail bank has less than $20,000 in cash on hand. If you put a gun up to the head of a person at a bank, They'll give you less than $20,000 and they'll give you all the cash they have. And so if you have more than three Bitcoin that you're looking to self-custody, you're talking about more money that you need to passively and actively worry about than somebody holding up a bank. And for some people, that's just way more fear than they need to deal with. That's way more, did I leave the oven on than they can handle. I have a broader question. What is the point of owning Bitcoin if you're not your own bank? To make money is the point for some people, I guess, for investors, you know. Right. So we're talking about price exposure to a speculative asset rather than use of a cryptocurrency as an alternative self-sovereign financial instrument that you control. And I think a lot of people fall in that dichotomy of they're either in it because they're looking for a speculative asset that will give them exposure to high yield, high volatility returns, or they're looking to have self-sovereignty with an asset that is unconfiscatable, uncensorable, independent, et cetera, et cetera. That's really where the question of whether you want to be your own bank lies. So why move your money into Coinbase? I think the only reason you would use that as your way to be exposed to the price action is because we haven't seen ETFs yet. The moment an ETF is authorized in American markets, none of these people need to ever buy Bitcoin from Coinbase or worry about where they store it. They can get all of the price action they want simply by buying an ETF on their Charles Schwab brokerage account or whatever with none of the concerns. At that point, they're not even using Bitcoin. Well, they won't even be affecting the price of Bitcoin because it'll probably be some gross synthetic that doesn't in any way <laughs> take supply out when you buy. No, oh, fantastic. Then whatever's left is people who actually want to use Bitcoin as a mechanism to have control over their own finances. I honestly think the people who are looking only to get exposure to the price are completely missing the point of what Bitcoin is about. So again, why crypto unless you want to be your own bank? I hear what you're saying about sort of people who are in this as speculators, but I have to tell you, like a lot of people who I know, I don't really think of them so much as speculators. And perhaps that's the wrong way to be looking at them. But for many of these people, again, you know, like three, four years ago, they set up hardware wallets. You know, they went through all of the process. They ran full nodes. Some of them ran the original Bitcoin software at a time when that was sort of a required thing to do. So we're not necessarily talking about people who are like, oh, man, the ICO bubble came. Let's, you know, get some more price exposure because I'm looking for yield no matter what. These are people who actually do believe in it. They just don't live in a part of the world where it's actually a thing that helps them in most day to day stuff. I think you're also missing that they're scared and traumatized because you said they've experienced losses. Yeah. 
And you never forget that. I mean, I think we've all had an experience like that where we screwed something up and we lost some coin. And man, you just never forget that. And you beat yourself up over it. And if you go into it with the expectation that, you know, like this would be catastrophic to lose anything, then, you know, you're going to take it really hard when you inevitably do make some kind of mistake and lose it. And I think that that is something that people just need like therapy or meditation or something to deal with. Something that's not Coinbase, right? Like Coinbase can't solve the problem of fear. I think this is a psychological issue with people's expectations and with people's response to the trauma of loss. And of course, like it's a natural human thing. We all want to hang on to the money that we have. And I guess I don't have any specific tips, except maybe just try to go into it with the mindset that if you are your own bank, you have to accept responsibility for if you make some mistakes. And and that's the price you pay. Yeah, that's the price you pay for freedom, right? With great freedom comes great responsibility, right? And <laughs> the phrase is with great power comes great responsibility. But with being your own bank comes great responsibility. And if you don't want to accept that, okay, maybe Coinbase is a good solution. But Maybe like it's an opportunity to kind of adjust your mindset and think about this whole thing with cryptocurrencies. This is an experiment. This is a new technology. And as a result, as you learn it, there's going to be a learning curve and maybe you're going to take some losses, but you probably still have more than you started out with or if this technology didn't exist. So you can think about it like that if it helps. But I know it's painful. I mean, it is painful when you lose money. And especially if it's like money that you feel you can't afford to lose, that can be devastating. So I would suggest if you think you can't afford to lose it, do something about that to where you're more protected and you're not taking on the risk of, did I leave the oven on with more than three Bitcoins, as Jonathan put it. I think the bigger issue here is that Part of the reason there have been such tremendous gains in some areas of crypto is because of the risk premium paid by early adopters who have to deal with this highly experimental technology and take these massive risks of self-custody. That gives them the ability to acquire and hold Bitcoin before everybody else, and it requires a steep learning curve, and that is compensated by appreciation. If it was easy to get hold and be in control of Bitcoin and everyone could do it, the price appreciation that corresponds to that risk would have already happened and you'd be on the other side of the curve. Because it's not easy, because it takes so much work, because it takes so much risk, because others are not willing to do it, you get a discount. And that discount corresponds to the amount of risk you're willing to take. And as it gets easier and easier, the discount disappears as the price appreciates and you earn that. I think that's important to understand. That's a big part of where the appreciation comes from. When you look back and you say, well, you could have gotten Bitcoin at $5 each back in 2012. So you were really lucky if you did. No, you weren't lucky. Because at the time, the amount of risk you would take on and the difficulty to find and secure and control that Bitcoin was enormous. And you might lose half of it and lament your loss, but the other half of it increased in value so much, as Stephanie said. So I think part of 
the possibility of loss is what gives you the possibility of gain, as it should be in a capitalist system. Capitalism with gains without losses isn't. Anyhow, we talk about Coinbase kind of as the placeholder, and I don't want to demonize Coinbase or elevate Coinbase. Any exchange really represents a custodial risk. I think, Adam, to your point, for a lot of the people who are making this shift, I wonder how cognizant they are of what risks they're shifting. Because if it appears like the very obvious risk of holding your own keys and making a mistake is swapped for no risk or less risk, that's, in my mind, an incorrect assessment of what happens. Instead, what you're doing is you're taking the very obvious and specific risk of loss and mismanagement of keys that you're experiencing, and you're replacing it with a much less obvious but equally large, if not larger, risk of counterparty collapse or counterparty violation of your trust when you give a custodial your keys. And so you're replacing a very obvious risk that you're unable to manage with a much less obvious risk. And in the process, you think you've reduced risk, but in fact, you've increased it. It also sometimes just comes down to psychology, which is, you know, even if you're increasing the risk of loss by giving it to an exchange rather than self-custodying, even in that scenario, it's a hell of a lot easier as a human to hate someone else than to hate yourself. Yes. You got nobody but yourself to blame if you're holding your own keys and people don't like that. That's true. Exactly. <laughs> and God forbid, you know, you have a wife, you have a husband and you took your savings, you bought Bitcoin, they went along with it and then you self-custodied it and then you lost it, needing to explain that to your significant other versus that financial institution messed us up. That's a lot harder of a hole to get yourself out of emotionally and relationship wise both with yourself and your other, than saying that person messed us up. Yeah, people are already kind of angry at Coinbase. So like, you know. And why are they angry at Coinbase or any of the other exchanges? So for every message I see on Bitcoin Beginners or one of the other forums online that says, I've messed up my hardware wallet, I can't find my mnemonic phrase, I got hacked and whatever. I also see a whole bunch of messages. Now, these messages are not always the exchange got hacked and my money's gone, although they sometimes are. A lot of the time, the exchange has frozen my account and no one at customer service will return my emails anymore. That happens all day long. And that's a risk that's not immediately obvious. So your money's still there. It hasn't been stolen by anyone, unless you consider that theft by the exchange, but they certainly wouldn't. And you simply managed somehow to expose yourself to a risk of one of your coins being tainted or doing some activity that violated their terms and conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And now you're back to the old banking risk, which is that they exert control of your funds and they're not really your funds. So when they freeze your account and stop talking to you, you're like, they took my money. And the simple answer, of course, is no, you gave them your money and it's not yours anymore. And now it's subject to terms and conditions without due process because that's the banking system. So we don't talk about that risk. Of course, there is the possibility that the exchange will get hacked, not your keys, not your coins. It's gone. You have no recourse. There's no insurance, et cetera, et cetera. But what we don't 
really talk about is the possibility that the exchange will simply freeze your account because something happened that tainted your coins. And that happens very often. These days, it's more likely to happen as a result of exchanges trying to be compliant. But this is not a new story. And as was mentioned earlier, you know, we're talking about Coinbase because it's sort of the biggest player out there right now. And the one that seems like, at least from my experience, many people are looking to as sort of the most trusted face of the available places where they can stick their crypto. But I mean, I remember in the early days of Bitcoin, when to even own any amount of Bitcoin, you not only had to run wallet software, but that wallet software was by definition a full node which meant your computer was keeping track of every single Bitcoin transaction throughout history. Very healthy for the network, but challenging for a lot of users, and I think even me, in the early days to use in ways that felt like it was actually safe. And I did have some losses in those early days from, you know, it used to be that you'd back up your wallet.dat file, and then if you didn't back it up, you know, every 50 transactions, then your wallet would lose track of what addresses you actually were using. And there were a lot of challenges even in the early days. And this was sort of before the era where exchanges were being, you know, popularly used. But what was popular in those kind of early days was the idea of a web wallet, right? A wallet that was basically a light node wallet. It's what exchanges are in large part today, except with none of the security and sort of none of the finesse that has been developed in these systems in large part because of all of the losses. I think the best way to describe the first web wallets was it was basically Zoom, (laughs) where the security was literally the link and knowing the link. So instead of, you know, people doing inappropriate things, joining your webcast, they just stole all of your money. Yeah, I used to call them pinatas. It was the way I like to think about them, because like there was this sort of fixed amount of effort that you needed to break the thing open. But if you just kept filling it with more and more and more money, right, you kept filling it with more and more candy then eventually it becomes worth breaking the thing open, even if it's really, really hard. It was the same thing here is that as web wallets would get big, they would start off relatively secure compared with the amount of funds they were storing. But as they would get bigger, their security wouldn't grow, but the incentive to bust them open would. And you could see that on the blockchain because it was like displayed, you know, all the transactions where the same address was being reused. This was like before HD wallets were common. Yeah. And I think the analogy today for that is kind of the world of DeFi, right? Where you have these protocols that have their security built into their smart contracts. But then if suddenly the amount of money that they're holding goes from a couple hundred thousand dollars to a hundred million dollars, well, now there's a real reason for someone to spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly how you pick that lock and get at everything that's kind of behind it. I think this pendulum is going to swing back and forth just like it has on the internet between centralization and decentralization, between custodial and self-hosted solutions. We've seen that swing back and forth with the email, for example. In the early days, you ran your own mail server. Then we all went over to Gmail. Now a lot of people are moving back to other solutions and doing various forms of self-hosting. We've seen that with chat and messaging protocols. We're seeing that now with video conferencing protocols. And this pendulum swings back and forth in technology, depending on the political climate. So I expect that we're going to see another swing in the opposite direction, which will be triggered by two things. The first one is opportunity, and the other one is risk. In terms of opportunity, I think we're going to see more robust wallet solutions that include things like multi-sig, time locks, and social sharding, where six of your friends have enough shards that they can help you reconstruct your wallet 
but that any transaction you make with these shards is delayed sufficiently so your six friends can't run off with your money because as long as you have some of the original keys, you can override any transaction. I think we're going to see models like that where you have kind of layers and layers and layers of recovery options that have back off or delay periods that are greater and greater the more dire your key loss is so that it's not lose one and you're done, but basically it's just a matter of gracefully degrading the degree of trust and control you have the more key material you lose. And I think, so opportunity means better opportunity for you to securely be your own bank with fewer headaches. The other one is risk. And the simple fact is that we are going to see bank failures. We are going to see failures of financial institutions, failures of exchange-traded funds, failures of custodians that one day are going to go from eternal, traditional, invincible to gone, just like Lehman Brothers. I don't know if we will have failures. And I'm not disagreeing with you on facts. I'm disagreeing with you on rhetoric. Maybe not here. Maybe in other countries. Maybe in some markets. Maybe. But there will be plenty of opportunities for the illusion of custodial security to start showing cracks. But I also mean that to normal people, narrative is everything. And when governments fail, they don't fail, they succeed. They just recontextualize facts. <laughs> right. Mission accomplished and retreat gracefully. And so like a whiplash of we've always been at war with Oceania and goalpost moving means that there are no failures. It's just that always was the case. Yeah, there was this time where we did it this weird archaic way, but this is always the way we do it correctly. Like the notion that you used to have to wear a tinfoil hat to even say the word deep state. And I think for the past two years, I've heard it more than I think in the entire other 30 <laughs> is rather profound. And when it comes to bank failures, I just think, you know, we've had a bank failure. It happened in 1913. And then we had another one in 1972. <laughs> and we had another one in 08. And normies just keep chugging along because the normal gets redefined so that failure is success. And they have no problem with it. One way that happens is we all become billionaires, just like the average Zimbabwean. <laughs> so we can adopt that model. Our purchasing power goes to shit, but we have lots of zeros on our currency. The other model is that the opportunity to have safety, security in the future becomes so expensive that the few who have it have to retreat behind higher and higher walls and get ferried from home to school to work in armored cars because the 80% of society that's outside of the walls wants to basically murder them for good reason. Now, that's not an outlandish scenario. That's what it looks like in South Africa and Brazil and Venezuela and parts of Mexico City and many other places around the world. And maybe we redefine success that way. The point is that we are going to see a back and forth where... When the normal gets redefined, suddenly the appeal of being your own bank changes. I think there is tremendous luxury in having institutions that at least appear to be stable over some period of time, where you don't need to worry about the details of how they work and what happens under failure conditions. That luxury is pretty concentrated in just a few places in the world. And at some point, you can't afford the luxury of apathy.
This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by eToro. With eToro, you can create a diverse and flexible portfolio of the world's most popular crypto assets. Follow trends and market data with charts and price alerts. And you can even learn by trading in virtual mode with $100,000 of test funds available as soon as you start your account. eToro was founded in 2007 and began adding crypto trading in 2013. It offers support for 140 countries, including U.S. traders. eToro has no hidden fees, no commissions, and low spreads compared to competitors. It's easy to get started with automatic account verification and 24-hour weekday support. Create your account in minutes right now at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Please trade responsibly. Crypto assets are volatile and trading carries risks. Once again, thanks to eToro. What if money could be created without an authority? Are corporate coins the first step towards techno-neo-feudalism? Is the real darknet run by state intelligence agencies? Bitcoin and Open Blockchain's educator, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, answers these questions and more in his latest book, The Internet of Money, Volume 3, now available on Amazon. Following the worldwide success of Volumes 1 and 2, this third installment contains 12 of Andreas's most inspiring and thought-provoking talks. Available in paperback and on Kindle Unlimited, order The Internet of Money, Volume 3 on Amazon today. And now, back to the show. So, Andreas, I agree with you on the pendulum swinging. It seems like it's been doing that basically since the word go on this. Kind of stepping back from this concept for ourselves personally or for other parts of the world specifically, how important is it for people to actually want to be their own bank for the value of the thing that we're doing here, right? For Bitcoin to actually succeed, does it need people to want to be their own bank? It seems like with like the Lightning Network and with many of sort of these higher layer approaches, we're already sort of abstracting away the idea that you'll necessarily do key management yourself. Is it a bad outcome for Bitcoin if the base layer Bitcoin winds up being a settlement layer where people aren't really using things that have to interact with the base level protocol and yet the distributed form of truth that it provides enables people to build applications and to build new systems on top of it? that don't require you to be your own bank, but which convey a lot of sort of the advantages. Do we need people to want to be their own bank? And if so, how many people need to do that? Well, that's the exact same question as do we need people to be independent content bloggers on the internet or should everyone just use Facebook? Do we need people to use VPNs or should everyone just transmit the data in the clear? Do we need everyone to run a Tor node or should we just give up on that? All of do we need to engage in privacy protecting activities online or is it sufficient for only some people to do that, those who are big targets? I think it's going to be a range. So as long as there's a possibility of being your own bank, there's a possibility of running your own node and a significant enough number of people do that, it keeps the system honest and secure to a certain extent and makes it harder to attack. It's a classic case of a free rider or tragedy of the commons scenario, which is that if everybody decides they don't need to run a node, or if everybody decides they don't need to be their own bank, and no one does it, then the ability to free ride on other people running a node and being their own bank evaporates and you no longer have that option, right? 
So you can only say, I don't really need to run a node as long as somebody else does. But if everybody says that, then there is no network. And so the bigger problem here is a problem of incentives, not a problem of desire or discipline. So I think what's important here is that the choice is available to people who either want it for ideological reasons or for people who need it. And so long as there is a large enough group of people who, for ideological reasons or because they simply have no other option and it's the option that they want to take, so long as they are doing that, then that sort of protects the ability and to a large degree the choice for the rest of us to do it in the event that we would need to do it. In the back of my mind, at least, I'm glad my fellow Bitcoiners get the luxury of choosing not to do these things. Because if they no longer have that luxury, it means something really bad happened, some externality that has dramatically changed the threat environment. So if it gets to a point where everybody needs to be their own bank and run their own node, that's because fundamental institutions have started breaking on a systemic basis and everybody's miserable. I want everyone to have that luxury. But the problem is in order for everyone to have that luxury, someone's got to run the servers. Right. <laughs> In the following conversation, Coinbase refers to a custodial exchange with a large customer base, just like Xerox is a photocopier and Hoover is a vacuum cleaner, even if not made by the companies Xerox and Hoover, respectively. Ha! We're using it as a verb. We don't think your company's bad. We just want you to lose your trademark. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. It's a double-edged sword. They're getting free marketing and criticism, which is healthy at the same time. But yeah, listener be advised. Coinbase is used as a generic term in order to invalidate their trademark, but also offer public criticism of important infrastructural components in the cryptocurrency space. <laughs> Stephanie, the model you described, which is the staircase of self-sovereignty, has been a very powerful model, and I've reused it several times since that discussion we had. Oh, that's great to hear. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's a great idea. I think it's very important not to begrudge people their inability to be their own bank or criticize that, because every step matters. Every degree of participation, every tiny exertion of sovereignty matters and it adds up. A million people who buy Bitcoin but then store it on Coinbase is still better than zero people who do that, even if only a few of them convert to taking control of their keys and even fewer of them take the next step up the staircase to run their own node, etc., etc. We're still climbing the staircase. And even taking a step outside of the fiat narrative to dip a toe into cryptocurrencies is already an action that has very, very profound implications for society, even if you fail to take any more steps. And that's as far as you go. And sometimes you take a step down the staircase. That's okay. So I started this conversation by asking, what's the point? We're not shaming anyone for using Coinbase. <laughs> exactly. So now I think that's a good point to switch and talk about, okay, so what actions can you take? So the first one that I thought of is practice. Take a small amount of coin, whatever you have, and if you lose it in the process of practicing, take it as like 
a fee that you've paid for a course about how to secure your coin and how to manage it, right? Take five bucks worth of Bitcoin and practice sending it to different addresses, practice creating a new wallet, different kinds of wallets, use different wallet software, back them up, restore them on a different device, see if that works for you, and then see what makes you feel most comfortable because I really think that practice is the key to feeling comfortable with something. And, you know, this is a skill that you have to kind of maintain. Just like if you don't speak a language for many years, you might forget certain words. If you don't touch cryptocurrency for a couple of years, you might forget certain stuff or things might change. The protocols get updated. There's new developments in the technology. So, I mean, you can address all of that by practicing. That's a great segue to what Adam and Jonathan were talking about, which is this constant fear of, did I leave the oven on? Well, the really simple answer, which doesn't resolve the underlying cause, but at least calms the fear is check the damn oven. If you have to check it three times a day just to be sure that you didn't leave it on, well, it's going to at least reduce the fear. So the practice you're talking about is like checking the oven. I also would say on the same note that Stephanie mentioned, take an extremely small amount be it a couple of dollars, if you're in a place where a couple of dollars is de minimis, and try to negligently have it be stolen. <laughs> like some fears, one irrationally exacerbates because it's never happened. And so they think that the fear or the risk is far greater. Like they apply black magic thinking like, oh God, this is going to happen. The instant it touches my computer, the instant this happens, it's just going to be stolen. It's going to be gone. So the level of fear as to how proper hygiene is or what that looks like, can sometimes be far beyond reason in terms of how secure or how clean you think you need to be. And so sometimes, you know, you get on a bicycle, you scrape your knee for the first time, realize you didn't break your leg, but maybe you can ride a bike. So maybe take two or three dollars and leave it on your desktop that you normally use regularly and just see, like, just experiment with extremely small amounts of money and just see how non-immediate theft can be or how immediate it can be and be able to calibrate what scraping your knee looks like so you actually know the level of fear that's appropriate for the larger amounts. You know, hilariously, I don't think I actually know anybody, myself included, who's really thought about using smaller amounts relative to whatever your scale of value is, you know, as a way. For me, Bitcoin has always been like, all right, I have some money that I want to be Bitcoin. And so I trade that money in for Bitcoin, right? Or I go the other way. And it's very much not a thing where I'm like, oh, okay, here's $2 that I'm going to spend a bunch of time experimenting with. But one thing that I have noticed, though, is that, you know, over the years, I've used a lot of different types of tokens, a lot of Bitcoin in different forms, you know, to experiment with stuff, you know, because I wanted to see how stuff worked, not necessarily for practice. One thing I've noticed is that just to that fear point, you don't get that for those smaller amounts, right? If something is in your world de minimis, then the experience of practicing with it, I wonder if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Because on the one hand, you do get practice with the actual procedures. And if it all goes horribly wrong, well, then it's not something where you're going to be, you know, beating yourself up over the course of the next number of years as the price continues to go up and your mistake seems to grow. But on the other hand, how important is that feeling, not necessarily of fear, but of just knowing that part of what we're doing here is taking care of yourself, basically, and taking care of your own assets without necessarily having a trusted third party, right? Or even if it's someone who we don't necessarily think we can trust. That's why you start with small amounts and then you practice making larger transactions. So you gradually expose yourself to 
higher stakes kind of activities once you feel comfortable with level one. You move up the staircase of self-sovereignty or, you know, just keep making it a little bit more difficult and practice trusting yourself. I think that's a key point because we've so far talked about the staircase of self-sovereignty as an example where you occupy a specific step. But that's not necessarily the case. If you use a tiered storage model where you have, you know, your deep, deep cold storage, your medium cold storage, your refrigerated storage, your thawed storage, your lukewarm and your scorching hot storage, and you can add as many tiers as you want, you can have those tiers on different steps of the staircase. You can have some amount which is custodial, some amount which is in deep, deep cold storage that you never touch, some amount that you have a small amount like petty cash that you play with and you do wild experiments of risk. And, you know, not only do you gain experience, but you also gain the satisfaction and feeling of accomplishment when you master those skills. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, that actually leads into the next thing that I was thinking of, Andreas, which was don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Like have multiple different systems that you feel comfortable with for storing and handling cryptocurrencies. And there's always a trade-off between sort of like simplification and diversification, right? Because it is simpler. It simplifies your life to just have all of your Bitcoins in Coinbase, for example. But that also exposes you to more of the risks that we've already discussed. And if you have like, you know, three, four, five, six different wallets or different methods or different levels of coldness of your storage for your coins, well, if one fails, you still have all the other ones. And so it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, there's a point at which the complexity and sprawl starts working against you. And then you simply forget what you have and where you have it. And I think a lot of us who have been in the space a while and have been doing experiments in a variety of different cryptos, blockchains, tokens, etc., have ended up on the wrong side of that sprawl and had to do some consolidation. Sometimes there's the happy accidents and fines where you're like, you're sorting through an old wallet and you're like, oh, I wonder if I have anything on another branch of this wallet. Oh, look, this is easy talk. Hey, I found $20,000 in my coat pocket from last winter. <laughs> you used to find a $20 bill. Now you found $20,000. <laughs> no joke happened to me recently. I found some Ethereum on my petty cash wallet that I thought I had moved into cold storage. But because I didn't look at the Ethereum side of that petty cash wallet, I hadn't noticed it sitting there. So it happens. Okay, guys, so we're towards the end of this conversation. You know, one thing that has really occurred to me while we've been talking is that there's a difference in how institutions talk to us about risk, right? Because when you're talking about banks or, you know, custodians or, you know, even some exchanges to a certain extent, they want you to feel safe holding your funds with them. But if you look at what happens when you set up a wallet, you know, like go to mycrypto.com or something like that, and you have to go through like six pages of here are all of the ways that you could screw this up. And here are all of the ways that we can't help you with any of that stuff. And I think that the situations aren't that different. But the difference is that in one case, the company wants you to feel safe. And in the other case, they want you to feel unsafe. And so I guess it's not surprising that when we use tools like that, especially for people who are, you know, 
set up a Trezor or, you know, some type of hardware wallet, load stuff onto it, and then basically are like, all right, I'm good. It's now safe. You know, I'll check back in, you know, a year or two or something like that. And then they come back and there's all these updates piled for them on Trezor, right? And when you do those updates, they're like, make sure that you have everything because this might not work, right? Because you might have to completely reload your wallet. It's not a difference in reality, but it's a difference in how that reality is presented simply because when you are your own bank, nobody can help you if you screw it up. It should be full disclosure. Exactly. They're going out of their way to sort of obfuscate that. In terms of people who want the ability to be in charge of their own systems or do their own things, do you ever think there will be more bit people holding their own Bitcoin than people who bake their own bread? <laughs> That's an excellent question. I don't think there will ever be more people holding their own keys than people who bake their own bread. I just don't think it'll One ever happen. One of my absolute favorite new XKCD comics by Randall Monroe, if you don't know XKCD, you need to look it up, was a recent one that said that coronavirus is a sourdough yeast symbiont with a very complicated parasitic life cycle. <laughs> because it's getting people to bake their own bread for the first time in their life. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's forced people to breed more sourdough yeast by <laughs> shutting them indoors. And I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, and that just brings out the point that certain situations beyond our control can stress us in ways that we might have to try being more self-reliant, like the COVID situation. Right. So up until mid-February 2020, the American subculture of preppers were a bunch of paranoid idiots. <laughs> now they're geniuses. And so... That kind of vindication can also happen in financial affairs. The be-your-own-bank subculture in crypto is a bunch of paranoid idiots for now. For everybody's sake, let's hope we always remain a bunch of paranoid idiots because the moment we become genius prophets is the moment when all of you have lost your sense of safety. Thank you for listening. You can find new episodes every Sunday on Coindesk.com, Let's Talk Bitcoin.com, and of course, the show's dedicated feed at LTBShow.com. This episode was sponsored by eToro.com. Today's show featured Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine with music by Jared Rubens from Ether and Gertie Beats. This episode was edited by Jonas. Have any questions or comments? Send me an email at Adam at LTBShow.com, and we'll see you next week.